Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we're talking about the theology of Eucharist, something that most of us probably do very regularly in our church setting. And um, what's its significance? What's its importance for our everyday life as Christians? And um, what's it mean to our community as a church? And so as we look at this question, I think it's interesting because myself as a a Protestant, um, you know, normally in our services or the Protestant services I've been a part of, uh, we give more preference to the ministry of the word, an emphasis to, to the preaching and communicating of scripture over the ministry of the table that's kind of um, distinguished throughout church history. And uh, I just think, man, we need to be very careful of this. And I'm curious what you think, Scott, why is this so important and dangerous to undermine the importance of the Eucharist uh, in our worship context? Yeah, Chaz, this is a good question, and it affects every one of us who attend church and it affects every Sunday if we attend churches, uh, at least for some. It affects us in one way or another. So, for instance, take a look at a typical uh, post-Puritan American church, and that is uh, most of them will have in the front of the church, that as you look at it, you will have a pulpit, and you will have a some kind of table for the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. Um, I have preached, I was uh, recently, uh, we were in England, and I was at the famous St. Mary's Church in Oxford, and the pulpit at St. Mary's Church is to the side. It's the pulpit in which C.S. Lewis gave his famous oh, wow. talk, The Weight of Glory. All right, so it's to the side, whereas the focus of the mind of the eye is on the Eucharist table. Well, if you go to mega churches today, they have a platform, a big platform. Or no it's table like at a, all. <laughs> it's a stage. No table. Some of them don't have crosses, and it's all about a pulpit, but it, it's, a, it's a platform or a stage that transforms. They may carry out a pulpit uh, so that there mm-hmm. would be one available. So the mind's eye is not on a pulpit or on a table. You go to most Protestant churches, though, it's probably a raised platform and a big pulpit. This tells us something about what's important. I grew up in a church where we had a raised platform, a big pulpit, and underneath the pulpit was the this do in remembrance of me table for communion. Yeah, that was the exact same setup in my church, yeah. too. And that, that tells us something. Now, I think if we go to the New Testament, we cannot discover the order of a first century service. Uh, We shouldn't even assume that there was such a thing as a first century service. So let's not pretend that we have either completely uh, proven our faithfulness to the Bible or that we have departed from the Bible in what we're doing here. These are two important elements of Christian worship. Eucharist and preaching. And so I think that we should embody in our church architecture the theology that we believe in. Uh, When the word becomes too important, and I believe that's possible, Eucharist gets gets diminished. When the Eucharist becomes too important, 
sermons become and preaching the word becomes too unimportant. So the Reformation, you know, it, this is this is something that a lot of people don't realize that there were centuries where sermons were not really the focus of why people gathered on mm -hmm. Sunday. They came to watch, in some context, to watch a priest take communion, mm -hmm. or they came to take communion, and that was about it. Mm -hmm. uh, there was maybe a little bit of a reading of scripture, and then you were done. Uh, then, uh, as a result of John Calvin's brilliance, Luther's brilliance, and then into the American uh, experiment, the colonials, uh, preaching become far more became far more important. Yeah. So, and 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 I do believe that the Lord's Supper was important, uh, you know, both for Calvin and Luther and others. But uh, there was a, an attempt to redress an imbalance, mm -hmm. lack of word, too much Eucharist. And then sometimes we uh, today I would say we have probably too much word and not enough Eucharist. So yeah. it, it it matters. We need to think about Eucharist and Lord's Supper. And when I use the word Eucharist, it sounds like High Church Anglican, which I am, but it's not. I don't. I'm not High Church, but I'm Anglican. Um, I don't want us to think. Uh, I, I I mean by that Lord's Supper. I'm not trying to use any kind of special word, but Eucharist happens to be a New Testament word used for the Lord's Supper, and it means Thanksgiving. So it's an important uh, word for describing what we're doing. Yeah, I mean, whether it's Eucharist or Communion or Lord's Supper really comes down to the same thing. I think it's interesting how we see swings in church history and swings of the pendulum that, yeah. you know, we're over here, and then we feel like in order to correct it, we have to go yeah. past the point of what really probably where we should be. Um, and it, it seems to be a very difficult for us to, to keep it right in the, the, the balance that, that it should be held in. We, we need to recognize that Sunday morning isn't the only thing that happens for the Christian in the context of church, mm -hmm. but it is very important. And we need to realize that we... What happens on a Sunday morning structures and forms us in the Christian life. Mm -hmm. um, recent, many recent authors are talking about this. It's also connected to virtue ethics, that habits will produce character. This is from Aristotle. Yeah. Aquinas picked it up, but a lot of people picked it up. In a, in a, part, a voice that has been very influential for many today is Jamie Smith at Calvin who emphasizes habits. All right, let's just say that we need the preaching of the Word. We need Eucharist. We need prayers. We need the reading of Scripture. And all of these things are influential in us. They are formative for mm -hmm. us. And I think that worship leaders and pastors, seminaries, you know, even here at Northern Seminary, where we focus on some of these things, I think we need to talk about the balance that is needed in every church service so that over time the church can be formed. Mm -hmm. And we use uh, Eucharist forms us because it draws our attention to what God has done for us in Christ. It draws attention not only to what God has done, let's say, that Jesus has become our sacrifice, that he has died on our behalf. Yeah. It also focuses on something we must do in response. Uh -huh. that we must Now, in some churches, you sit there and they pass trays around. Mm -hmm. In our church, we walk forward mm -hmm. and we hold our hands open and we're given bread and we eat it. And then we take from the cup. Right? So we are acting, we are ingesting food, uh, bread, and we are ingesting 
grape juice or yeah. the wine. And this is a way of saying, I believe in salvation in Christ and I'm participating in that salvation in what I'm doing. Over time, you do that weekly. Um, you can either do it monotonously in a routine, in a rut, so that it doesn't mean anything and it becomes sacrilegious. Yeah. Or you can do it with intention and meaning and contemplation and thought, and it can deeply form us to see ourselves as a grace-soaked people mm -hmm. forgiven by what God has done for us in Christ. Yeah, I like how you talk about it in the context of transformation and, and acceptance and that continual uh, acceptance, because I think something, maybe not so much Eucharist, but but other things in transformation where we're calling people to, to live different because of what Jesus has done, sometimes it can get misunderstood as, as works righteousness, as having to earn our way into our acceptance and, and forgiveness of God, which is clearly not what yeah. Jesus intends, but there is a necessary acceptance that, that we need to do. And, and I think Jesus has given us his beautiful gift of communion Eucharist for us to participate, like you said, every week um, yeah, that, well, that, that roots us in, in our transformation that's ongoing. There's a famous statement by Jesus in John chapter 6 that we must uh, eat his flesh and drink his blood. And there's been a big debate. Yeah. Is... Is this really a Eucharist passage brought back into John 6? Is John just sort of re-expressed what Jesus said in light of Later, Eucharist? Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Dunn, my professor, uh, once wrote an article in which he said, No, uh, this passage is not about the Eucharist. The Eucharist is about this passage. Hmm. In other words, the Eucharist is an opportunity for us to drink the blood of Christ and to eat his flesh. Now, that sounds cannibalistic in our world, and I have funny stories about what little kids hear. When they <laughs> but the, the point is that in the Gospel of John, we are constantly appropriating, attending, believing, trusting, abiding. Uh, all the time, it's this act of, of abiding in Christ. I believe that Eucharist is yet another opportunity for us to express that we abide in Christ through his, through his body and through his blood. So I, I totally agree with you. When we come forward, we are reenacting mm -hmm. and acting out mm -hmm. our faith. That this is what we believe. This is where we get life. Yeah. Christ. Yeah. When I've heard you talk about Eucharist before, I've heard you use the phrase embodied remembrance. And uh, I just, if you could unpack that a little yeah. when you've used that, what do you mean by embodied remembrance? Remember that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, that Paul says, do this in remembrance of me. And this is, this is on a lot of communion tables. Mm -hmm. It's a great expression from the Bible. Mm -hmm. Memory uh, is a very important concept in spiritual formation. It's a very important concept in history. It has been reduced many times in our modern world to mental cognitive acts. I remember mm. something. Yeah. Uh, that means I, I, I remember how many hits uh, Lou Brock got on that baseball game. Yeah, we can right recall back. and recite what it is. Uh, but memory in the Bible is more... So, so, for instance, the prophets will say, Remember us, Lord. Hmm. Well, that doesn't mean that God has to recall, oh, yeah, I got this covenant, remember, with Abraham. It means, uh, rather, it is to 
live faithfully according to the covenant that God has said. Mm-hmm. So in embodied remembrance means that we are going to remember this covenant that God has made with Christ. And it's not simply that we're recalling what he has done. That's a part of it. It's also cognitive, and it's got to be cognitive. But it is our attempt to reenact the original Lord's Supper of Jesus. And it is, uh, we are remembering it in that way. It's not just that we recall, it's that we have entered ourselves into that very act that Jesus did many years ago. But that's why I add the word embody, Mm -hmm. is that by doing this, Mm -hmm. by eating and drinking, we not only remember cognitively, our whole body is engaged in the memory of what Jesus has done for us at the Last Supper, which, as you know, uh, was a Passover meal. Yeah. It seems like, you know, part of our Western understanding and mentality is very linear. We're very linear people. Events come one after another. But maybe something that kind of gets lost in the translation and more of an Eastern culture would be the cyclical nature or understanding, um, you know, things and life events in in, in circles. Would you say that might be kind of part of the something that gets lost? Look, God gave to Israel a calendar. A mm-hmm. sacred calendar. And they were to, and that sacred calendar is composed of the formative events of Israel's story and yeah. history. So it's a, it's about Yom Kippur, it's about Rosh Hashanah, it's about, you know, Passover. It's about major events being remembered by the people of God. And it's not just that we got to read those texts and then we'll have a turkey dinner. Yeah. It is, they're going to remember those texts by reenacting those texts. Yeah. And going back to Jerusalem, or mm-hmm. if they stayed at home, uh, you know, participating in Passover. Yeah. Uh, slaying a lamb, etc. So they, they are, um, they are recalling these things on a regular basis. And this is why it is fundamentally mistaken for the church especially in the West, especially low church evangelicalism, to ignore a church calendar. Um, If you have wise pastors who are theologically astute and who ignore the church calendar, but in the process cover all the major events of the Bible, cross, resurrection, Mm -hmm. ascension, Mm -hmm. um, Pentecost, the covenant with Abraham, if they are doing that anyway because they're great preachers, because they're great teachers, then the church is covering the ground. Yeah. But there is something profound about following a church calendar. And when you have done this for 10 to 20 years, your brain, your body mm-hmm. have been programmed into the story of the Bible. And these things are lived over and over. Furthermore, they, the church calendar always makes us focus on what's most important to the story. Yeah. When we get to choose our text for years and years and years, we choose what is important to us, mm-hmm. not necessarily what's important to the Bible. So the church calendar allows us to participate in a cyclical memory mm-hmm. where we, we as bodies enter into this story 
over and over and over, and it forms us into, um, into what God wants us to be. Now, I think this is even more important, even when, especially when it comes to the Lord's Supper. That happens every week. Because in the it calendar. happens every week. But um, the focus of the church calendar is on the life of Jesus. Mm-hmm. We have Advent. The beginning of the year is not January 1st. It's Advent. And then we focus a little bit on the epiphany, the appearing of Christ. And then we go into Lent, which we are in right now. And we go to Holy Week. And then we go into waiting for Pentecost. And then we go into ordinary time, it's called. And that is where we focus on the life of Jesus. But all of this is on the life of Jesus and what God has done for us in Christ. Where we combine Old Testament readings with gospel readings and lessons from the New Testament and the epistles that bring a focus on the major events in the life of Jesus. Hmm. This keeps us focused on Jesus. Yeah. Rather than on, uh, let's say, uh, a systematic theological category. that we're, All we're going to talk about is justification. Justification is central to the gospel. But Jesus is even more central. Yeah. And telling his story is so important. So if somebody were interested to learn more about the church calendar that you've just laid out and mentioned, yeah. what would be a good resource if they're not familiar with how that's been laid out through centuries and the history of the church and you know, a good Robert, resource? Robert Weber has a series of books on, on major topics like this, and he has a book on the church calendar. And uh, I can't remember the name of it right now. Uh, but it's a whole. I'll find series. it and put it in the links to yeah, the, the it, description here. It's a whole here. series of books where he went through major topics, and he has uh, it's on sacred time, and it is a beautiful book. Uh, it's an introductory level. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox would want to nuance it this way. The Anglicans want to nuance it this way. The Catholics want to nuance it that way. But the 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 idea is that he introduces you to the big ideas of what's going on in a church calendar. And that church calendar allows you to remember, as it were, uh, remember what is most important in uh, what God is doing in the world. So, yeah. So how about getting back to to Passover and that specific meal that um, obviously was the context of when Jesus had the Lord's Supper? Um, could you give us some some just context, probably even ex- specifically more in the, you know, as the first century Jew would have understand understood Passover and its significance? Yeah. Um, I think that this is uh, Chaz. This is one of the elements about Eucharist and the Last Supper that is most disappointing to me about the church uh, and about how we practice it. The Lord's Supper has become a theological debate for many people. It has become uh, a religious institution, sacred place, sacred food, sacred utensils, sacred linens, sacred words, and it gets disconnected from the story. First century, the Last Supper in the first century occurred at Passover. We have tended to equate Jesus' atonement with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Mm -hmm. Jesus did not die on Yom Kippur. He died in Passover. And Passover needs to be given 
full play in our perception of what he's done for us. Mm -hmm. Passover involved things like uh, the sacrifice of an unblemished male lamb, everybody going to Jerusalem, people killing the victim, spreading and smearing blood on the lintel and the door posts. Uh, with hyssop, they roasted the entire lamb. Uh, they were all to eat this meal in haste, and they remembered that Yahweh had passed over the homes of those who had put the blood on their door in Egypt, and they were saved, or and so they could enter into the land. Into the land. Uh, so this this is what it's about. It is a day when Jews gathered to Jerusalem in hordes of people and saw all their families for a week. It was a week-long retreat vacation focused on Passover. And the Romans in the first century are doubly nervous about Jews. Gathering that many in Jerusalem yeah. to begin with mm -hmm. creates potential riots, and they often did create disturbances. And, uh, and some of the Roman soldiers, Josephus tells us, did stupid things to get... Uh, to Agamon. Agamon, and also to just flaunt their authority and power. Mm -hmm. But uh, the central idea of Passover is not that Jesus died for my sins, but that God provided a means of both redemption and liberation for the children of Israel so that they could leave slavery enter into the giving of the law so they would know how to live in the land. Mm -hmm. So it is fundamentally an act of liberation for the sake of living the way God wants us in this world. Yeah. Now, white people who are privileged don't particularly care for the theme of slavery and liberation. But that's what it was. Mm -hmm. and so the, But the Romans did care. Because they had an oppressed people called Israel, and they were under their thumb in many, many ways. And these Jews gathering in huge numbers in Jerusalem, meeting together in private houses, talking languages in, in, in a language they did not understand, and spending an entire week thinking about the liberation of God from slavery, mm -hmm. exciting their hopes, their anticipations, their eschatology coming into full play. All of a sudden now the Lord's Supper, when we go forward, is not simply about, well, I got my sins forgiven, I've confessed my sins, but that God has liberated a people yeah. to live the way God wants his people to live, in freedom, in under his, under his control, under his lordship, liberated from the empires of power around them, and now capable of living the way God wants his people to live. We anticipate new creation. We anticipate the new heavens and the yeah. new earth every time we take the Lord's Supper. So this theology of Passover needs to be exploited more. We need uh, Christian teachers and preachers and pastors to spend a lot of time on Passover so that they can soak what they say before the Lord's Supper 
into greater themes in the Bible. Yeah, I'd say especially even now in, you know, in our American context of the election season that we're in. And so many people seem like they, you know, they need to be reminded where their hope really comes from. Yeah. That, that our hope it doesn't, you know, doesn't come from anything more than the work of, of Jesus and being embodied in that and remembering that and, and allowing that to really anchor our, our lives in, in, in where our hope comes from. Yeah. Because, um, really, he is the answer. You know, he yeah. didn't have the answer. He, he was the answer. And I think we remember that when we give thanks. And we, we do. And, and there's, you know, this is, you, you're right. Bringing this up during election season, people who watch the news 24-7, you know, who are really tied to who who is winning in South Carolina, who's winning in Nevada, who's going to win on Super Tuesday, Mm. uh, as if this is going to, you know, really liberate the United States from its problems. I've I've lived around enough elections to know that while who we choose as president matters, I mean, I don't want to make light of it. Oh, yeah, no. But uh, as Christians, we can't let that, replace our confidence that Jesus is the Lord, that he was raised from the dead, that he was ascended to the right hand of the Father, and that he is ruling. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter who the president is uh, if Jesus is the one who is the Lord. Of course, each one of us as citizens may want to exercise our authority to vote in such a way that we would bring about the, the person that we want to be there. But yeah. uh, not at the expense of of failing to trust that Jesus is the Lord and that he's overall. And I I agree. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are saying, no matter who the Pharaoh is in our world, no matter who the emperor is in our world, we worship a different God who has liberated us from our oppression and our sin and systemic injustices, and he is going to bring us in to the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom, and we are called to embody that in our churches as we live forward into the future. So as we partake in communion and Eucharist this week, we're to remember the liberation and freedom that that we have in Christ to live as the people he's called us to be. Anything else on uh, Eucharist and and communion that we need to know? Well, there's, of course, a ton uh, to talk about, and I have uh, totally ignored, happily, I would say, the debates of the Reformation between transubstantiation consubstantiation and the symbolic view. I think all those debates are important. Uh, They're especially important for the history of the church, for understanding what we believe. Uh, But I have instead focused on what the New Testament texts are about, what earliest Christianity was about. And those debates will come later and they will clarify and they will make obscure some of the things that are in the New Testament. But in the process, I think, of debating uh, in the Reformation, Uh, We lost some of this story. We lost some of this contact with Passover and the great theme of liberation. And we want to embody liberation every time we partake in Eucharist. Absolutely. Thanks for joining us today. Have a great day.